everyone, Steve from Backcountry Gallery. Thank you so much for joining me today for podcast number two. Now, before we get started, I do want to mention that we had quite a few questions asking if we were going to be on iTunes and Spotify, and I can happily say that yes, we are now on both. However, I can't really predict when they're going to post the podcast. All I can do is submit the podcast to them and then it kind of happens when it does. So usually it takes a few days, but I guess we'll see how that plays out over time. So before we jump in, I have a couple of quick follow-ups, believe it or not, from podcast number one. And the first one has to deal with the Z cameras. I had a lot of people email me and say, hey, Steve, you're being a little bit tough on the Z cameras, aren't you? They're not that bad. And I do want to emphasize that they really are not that bad. The image quality is really good, absolutely on par with Nikon's DSLRs. And for the right subjects, they're a great little camera. There's absolutely no question about it. If I were still doing landscapes on a regular basis, believe me, I would be singing the praises of the Z cameras for that particular genre of photography because I used to carry a D3X, 1424, and 2470 when I went backpacking. And let me tell you, it was tough because sometimes you couldn't bring enough food along to stay very long because of all this camera gear sitting in your backpack. So believe me, a Z7 and something like a 14 to 30 or something is a godsend as far as I'm concerned for doing things like landscape. I also absolutely love my Z7 when I'm doing macro photography. Not only does it allow for focus stacking, but the autofocus is definitely better than the regular live view focus that we get on a D850. And that really tends to be helpful when I'm kind of fighting with a wiggly macro subject. My macro subjects are not static, they are moving around. So there are uses for the Z cameras and I think people really like them for portraiture and things like that as well. So I'm not disparaging the whole line, I'm simply saying that it's not the best choice necessarily for wildlife photographers. Now, the second follow-up I have from last week has to do with the shadow pulling tip I mentioned at the beginning. I've had a couple of emails and comments that asked, hey, you know what, how come you're not always just trying to use the lowest possible ISO all the time anyway? And you have to kind of strike a balance is my answer to that. The thing is, there's two factors that come into play. The first one, of course, is the fact that sometimes we're just really excited when we're out there shooting, aren't we? And we see an animal, it comes out of nowhere, we bring the camera up, and we kind of just leave the shutter speed where it is in some cases, just so that we can get that fleeting moment. So there are times that we maybe aren't sitting there thinking, gee, maybe I should lower my ISO here. However, if you get into that situation, and you immediately notice when you look in the viewfinder that there's a heavy shadow, maybe then it kind of snaps there and you go, oh yeah, I need to lower that ISO a little bit because maybe I don't really need the shutter speed that I'm you know, currently using. Now the other point I want to make with this is that we also have like our safe shutter speeds. I've talked about those in articles on my website before. And by safe shutter speed, I mean a shutter speed that you're pretty confident that if you're at say 500th of a second on a gimbal head with a 600 millimeter lens, that you're not going to really see any motion blur either caused by you or a relatively stationary subject. However, when we start going to 250, 125th, or 60th of a second, we start getting a lower and lower keeper rate because as we lower our shutter speeds, our chances of motion blur are increasing, right? So for me personally, if I can kind of stick with a little bit higher shutter speed, I'm happy to do that because I want to make sure that I'm getting a sharp image. I can handle noise. I know how to take care of that 
once I get the photo home. However, I can't fix blurry. So for me, I might say be in a situation where I'm at 1 500th of a second at ISO 3200. I take some pictures there and I know that I'm going to probably have a nice sharp image Certainly not any blur because of my own motion or the subject's motion, again, assuming a relatively stationary subject. Now, if I notice there's some shadows, though, maybe I say, hey, you know what? I would like to drop that ISO just a little bit and see if I can, you know, take advantage of the lower ISO when I have to go and pull those shadows later. And that's what I'm going to look at it and go, okay, let me drop this down to maybe 250, take a few there try 125th, take a few there. In fact, I have an article that kind of outlines this called ISO Insurance on the website if you want to check that out. So yes, I do believe that you should be using the lowest ISO you possibly can for any given situation. However, there are mitigating circumstances. And again, you do have to strike a balance between your ultimate keeper rate and your ability to pull shadows and keep that ISO low. So everything with wildlife photography is obviously a, a bit of a uh, song and dance there. So that about does it for the follow-ups. Let me hit you with this week's quick tip. And it's going to be a pretty quick one, in fact. And this one is scan your settings before you shoot. Now, this is one trick I really pound into the heads of my workshop participants. And it's honestly super easy. When you bring the camera to your eye, just take a second to check your settings. And I realize this seems like, you know, slap yourself across a face incredibly obvious, at least from the position of a comfortable desk chair, right? But the truth is, checking your settings before you shoot can be incredibly difficult to remember when you're in the field. It's very easy to kind of forget about looking at our shutter speed and our f-stop and our ISO and whether or not we have exposure compensation dialed in. The thing is, especially with wildlife photography, you are often thrust into a situation where all you want to do is focus on the subject and get the shot before the opportunity expires. And I mean, I absolutely get it. I run into that all the time myself. Wildlife photography is often long stretches of boredom punctuated by sheer photographic panic. In those scenarios, it's really easy to assume your settings are pretty much where you want them or very close, and you don't really worry about checking. You worry about capturing the image you see in the viewfinder. However, it's also incredibly easy to forget that you just lowered your shutter speed a bit on the last shoot from where it usually is, or maybe you forgot to check and see if you're actually using the lowest ISO possible for the shot, as we just mentioned. Or, and this is the big one, you forget to check and see if you have like inappropriate exposure compensation dialed in. If I had a dime for every workshop participant that came up and said, oh my gosh, I blew that shot because I was plus three or minus three or whatever it was. So although it's simple, this is probably one of the best pieces of advice I can give anyone doing wildlife photography. And that is to simply get into the habit of checking those settings as soon as the camera gets to your eye. You need to make it a habit. You need to make it so that when that camera comes up, your eye immediately goes along the bottom and just checks what the shutter speed is, what the aperture is, what the ISO is, and if there's any exposure compensation. If you can get in the habit of doing that, and maybe you need to just sit in your desk chair and just keep pulling the camera to your eye so it just becomes kind of rote memory. It just kind of becomes muscle memory, really, so that you're automatically looking down at those settings every single time you bring the camera to your eye. I guarantee it that if you do this, it's going to make a world of difference in your wildlife photography. Next, let's go ahead and jump right in to this week's questions. 
So our first question comes from Bill, and he's asking about gear for Yellowstone National Park, as well as some of my favorite locations. So let me share that stuff with you. First, for gear, for wildlife in particular, you need to really favor longer focal lengths. I like 500mm, 600mm, and I always take along a 1.4 teleconverter because I always, at one point or another, need to use the 1.4 teleconverter. I find that although you do see a lot, and you never know what you're going to see, most of the time the 500mm and 600mm plus a TC as needed guideline seems to work pretty well and covers probably 80 to 90 percent of the shots that I personally take in Yellowstone. That said, it's not a bad idea if you have the space for it to keep a shorter lens handy, something like a 300 PF or 300 F4 depending on your brand, that type of focal length. However, the priority should definitely be on the longer glass. So if it comes down to taking your long lens or taking the short lens and some other stuff, take the long lens, that's the one you're going to need. And in fact, as an additional recommendation, I would say that if you don't own like a 500 F4 or a 600 F4, this is probably a good opportunity to rent one. Very seldom do I make a recommendation to rent a lens and have the person say, oh, that was a terrible idea. I hated it. Most of the time, people are really happy that they rented the bigger glass when they're in a situation like what you get in Yellowstone. It's really nice to have that F4 glass when you need it, especially if it's a dimmer, darker day. And it's also nice to be able to put a teleconverter on and not end up at F8 and instead be at 5.6 and retain much better autofocus. So there's another little recommendation or another little expense if you want to think of it that way. Now, if you do plan to do some landscape photography while you're there, I find that a 2470 can usually cover the majority of it. However, sometimes it's nice if you have the space to have a 70 to 200 for tight crops on more distant vistas. Again, if you're limited on space though, I think for me anyway, I would take just the 2470 and not worry too much about the 70 to 200. As for cameras, I typically shoot full-frame cameras, so I typically have my D5 and my D850 with me on a trip like this. Now, the nice thing with the D850 is it kind of has a built-in crop camera, so if I'm in a situation where I have a subject that's just a little bit too far away, maybe I'll put the D850 on and I'll just either flip it to DX mode or plan to crop it down to DX mode later on in the computer. It's the same exact thing. So... Just kind of uh, something to think about. That's one great thing about having the D850. Now, I realize if you don't have a full-frame camera or D850, honestly, a crop camera can work really well, too. But if I was using a crop camera, I would probably favor more of a 500-millimeter focal length than a 600-millimeter for Yellowstone. As for the rest of the gear, just a few things. I also recommend a good tripod. I like my 3-series really right stuff tripod quite a bit, and I stick my Wimberly WH200 gimbal head right on top of it. I like using my tripod in Yellowstone, especially if I get into a situation where maybe there's a bear on a kill or something like that. Sometimes you don't want to stand there with a 600F4 in your hand waiting for an hour for him to look up and do something interesting. So a lot of times I love to have the tripod with me so I can just go ahead, set things up, and let it sit there. You know, another option, of course, is a monopod, but definitely take something so that if you're in a situation where you have to wait, you're not kind of stuck there for an hour holding a lens that becomes very uncomfortable. Plus, if you get fatigued, you get shaky, and then things aren't as good, right? Now, for wider work with tripods, I use a really right stuff BH55 ball head, and I actually have a quick-release system to swap the heads on and off the tripods. And if you want to see how that works, I'll put a link to a video I did all about that in the show notes 
for this podcast. So definitely head over to the blog over at my site and check that out. I also recommend taking a raincoat of some sort for your lens. You know, those covers that you can put on the lens to keep them dry? Because the truth is the weather in the mountains is like wildly unpredictable. And that is like any time that you happen to be in Yellowstone. You can drive through rain one moment, snow the next, and then it's sunny. So definitely a raincoat is a good thing to have in the car with you. So that's pretty much like my essentials for, you know, photo gear when you're in Yellowstone. As for locations, I'm going to start with telling you that I usually stay in Gardner. And the reason I stay in Gardner, Montana is it's right outside of Yellowstone. The hotels are generally cheaper and better appointed than the stuff that you get inside of Yellowstone. And it's a really good jumping off point. In fact, the route from Gardner to Mammoth, the little five miles or so that you take getting into the park is actually quite nice. And I have gotten some of my best images right along there. It's not uncommon to see bighorn sheep. You see elk in there and you know who knows what else will come across your path as you're driving into the park. So definitely a good place to start your morning every day. Now from Gardner though, here's some of the routes that I like. My favorite is the route that goes from Gardner over to Cook City because it passes through Lamar Valley. Although anywhere along that route is really good and I have seen a ton of wildlife. That's usually the first thing I hit as soon as I get to Yellowstone. That's the very first route I take because it's usually going to treat you pretty darn good. So definitely take a look at that. Just one side note there though, once you get out of Lamar Valley and you're heading towards Cook City, there's a lot of mountains and stuff and it's really, really pretty. Breathtaking scenery really. However, the wildlife opportunities tend to plummet a little bit. So if you really want to be like just hardcore wildlife, once you get to the end of Lamar Valley, that's where you turn around and go back through and try to find something else. Personally, a lot of times I will plan this so that I can maybe have lunch in Cook City, kind of let things reset a little bit. And then I go back out and I try it again. My next favorite route is from Gardner through Dunraven Pass all the way through Hayden Valley. That's been really good for me and I have definitely had a lot of good opportunities and great images come out of that particular drive. And my final favorite route is from Gardner down to Old Faithful, but with a mandatory side trip towards the west entrance because you go along the Madison River and honestly, you never know what you're going to see along that river. Got some beautiful elk there last fall, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot of wildlife through there and it's definitely a nice drive. So that's pretty much the areas I like to go. I do tend to stay more in the northern and maybe even western areas of the park because I've just never had very much luck in the southern part of the park at all. And even the eastern areas of the park really haven't done any wonders for my portfolio. So there you go. You have my hot spots and my focal length. So I hope that helps you next time you're in Yellowstone. All right, before we get to the next question, I do have to pay the bills at some point, so I'm going to go ahead and put a plug in for my ebooks, which are Secrets to Stunning Wildlife Photography, Secrets to the Nikon Autofocus System, and most recently, Secrets to Exposure and Metering for Nikon. If you're enjoying these podcasts and all the tips and tricks in there, you're definitely going to love those books. We are talking between all of them, I don't know, someplace around 1,300 pages or so of tips tricks, information, and advice, all presented in a way that's super easy to understand. So if you get a chance, head over to my website, backcountrygallery.com. Make sure you check out those eBooks. I think you'll be glad you did. Now on to our next question. So our next question comes from Gary and Gary just got a D500, which is awesome. He's very happy, but he says his only problem is that he shoots in raw, which for Nikon is NEF 
and EF, and for some reason, Lightroom claims it cannot open or import those files, and he does not have the issue with his D7000 or 610, and he's asking if I have any ideas. So I definitely do, I know exactly what's going on, but first, let me give you some background. Now, what you need to know before this is gonna make sense to you is that whenever there's a new camera model out on the market, what Adobe has to do is they have to get that camera model, they have to shoot some raw files with it, and then they have to come up with a profile for Lightroom so that it knows how to display those raw files. The thing is, not all raw files are the same. We see something like a Word doc and we assume that, you know, Microsoft Word can go ahead and open it and that's usually true. However, if it's a .NEF file, that doesn't mean they're all the same. So each and every camera is gonna have a different set of instructions that Lightroom's gonna to use to open that file. And this isn't just a Nikon thing, by the way. This applies across the board to every camera out there. And what happens is if we don't have a profile in Lightroom, if Lightroom hasn't been updated so that it can support your particular camera, you're gonna get this exact kind of problem. Now, my guess here is that Gary may be running an older version of Lightroom and there's just no support for that camera, but the first thing you need to do whenever you run into this issue is to go ahead and see if there are any updates for Lightroom, because if there are, there's a chance that your camera is gonna be supported after the update has finished running. So that's the first thing you need to do. Now. The flip side of this is if you have a very new camera. For example, I have a Sony A9 Mark II and Lightroom refuses to open any of the files in that one as well. And the reason for that is it takes Adobe a little bit of time to go ahead and reverse engineer all this stuff. So sometimes we don't get the updates right away or as soon as we want when we get a brand new camera. So sometimes you just have to wait and keep checking back. So it can happen with very new cameras or with very old versions of Lightroom. So how the heck do you work around this if you have maybe an older version of Lightroom? Well, one option, of course, the one Adobe wants you to take is to go ahead and upgrade to the cloud version of Lightroom, the Creative Cloud version, and you can put Lightroom Classic then on your desktop and have the modern version of Lightroom with all the support for all the cameras that are currently out and the ones that are gonna be coming out in the foreseeable future. So that's one solution, but of course, it's 10 bucks a month to do it. Now the other solution is just to use the Adobe DNG converter and convert the images to DNG format. Now DNG format is a digital negative format and it's an open source raw file pioneered by Adobe. And you can go ahead and convert pretty much any camera to DNG and Lightroom's gonna be able to go ahead and open those files for you even if it's an older version of Lightroom. So the workaround is to download Adobe's DNG converter and convert those NEF files from the D500 over to DNG format. And by the way, if you are using a D500 and using the current version of Lightroom, not to worry, it definitely supports D500 files. So I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea here. But anyhow, the DNG converter can certainly save the day if you're using an older version of Lightroom and you don't wanna pay for the Creative Cloud $10 a month subscription. You can definitely do it that way. And I'll go ahead and put a link in the show notes on my website under the blog post for the Adobe DNG Converter if you want to go ahead and check that out. Our final question comes from Jack, and it's all about getting dirty and getting low. So, as you know, I'm a very big fan of shooting low when I'm out there doing my wildlife photography, and apparently Jack is too, because here's his question. It says, I live in Central Florida and visit many dirty and or wet locations in order to take wildlife photos, and he has about half a dozen questions here. So we're going to have some fun. We're going to rapid fire through these questions, and I think you're really going to like this. So let's just jump in. 
First question, do you take extra shoes so you have a pair that's always drying? Absolutely. I generally have at least two pairs of shoes with me, sometimes three. And if I'm going to a warm location, I'll often have a pair of flip-flops or sandals or at least a couple of pairs of those types of shoes in the car as well. Now, if I'm along a beach, though, a lot of times I just go barefoot. I don't really worry about it too much, but everyone has a different comfort level there. But yes, the basic answer to this question is yes, take extra shoes for sure if you're going to be in a situation where it's going to get wet and or dirty. Next question, do you take anything to lay on? No, I don't. I should, but I'm just not that prepared. Next question, do you use knee pads? You know, another one that I should do, but I usually don't. The thing is, I don't really like knee pads. I recommend them to people all the time because other people don't seem to mind them, but I don't like those things wrapped around my knees. They find them very uncomfortable, so no, I don't wear knee pads and I don't use knee pads. What I do use, however, is a piece of yoga mat that I cut off that I bought from like the dollar store for a buck. And that works pretty well. Just cut yourself off a strip maybe six inches wide or so and just kind of keep it with you. Stick in a little backpack, whatever you have with you. And then you can kind of whip that out and use it to kneel down when the circumstance calls for it. So it is nice to have something because sometimes you're on rocks and that and it can be very uncomfortable. And it can actually affect the amount of time you can photograph your subject because if you're completely uncomfortable, you get wiggly, you either scare off the subject or you stand up and say, the heck with it, I can't do this anymore. And you know what happens the second you stand up, subject goes away. Next question. Do you take towels for the vehicle? I'm not entirely sure on this one. I'm assuming he's asking if I use towels for me that I have in the vehicle and not to wipe the vehicle down. But if you're asking about wiping the vehicle down, no, I don't use it for that. But I do have towels in there to wipe me down and to wipe the gear down. And let me tell you, I use them all the time. I have three or four old bath towels that I keep in there and I'm constantly using them for one thing or another. And in a lot of cases, I'll have one that's wet or damp or dirty and I'll have that laid out kind of drying out and the other ones are sitting there ready to go for whatever I'm shooting next. So yes, definitely put towels in your vehicle. The next question is, do you dismantle your tripod after it has been in water? And he's asking about if I differentiate between salt and fresh water when considering whether or not to disassemble. This is kind of a loaded question, so I'm going to kind of put it in little parts. First, yes, if it's in salt water, you better take it apart and you better dismantle it completely and make sure you rinse off everything thoroughly. Salt water just likes to kill everything it contacts, including your tripod. So definitely make sure it's thoroughly cleaned afterwards. Plus, if you're in salt water, there was a good chance you're probably along a beach or something and you may have gotten some sandy particulates and things like that in there that could also do some damage if they're not washed out. Now, freshwater is a little bit different approach. If I am along like a freshwater beach or something and I'm getting that sandy, gritty, those that real fine particulate stuff in there, yeah, I'm going to really thoroughly rinse everything out. However, if I'm like along a crystal clear stream or something, I have a tripod leg in there, pff, I don't think about it. I don't even worry about it. No problem at all. Now, one quick tip, though, just to help out if you're in a situation where you are using a tripod in water, one hint is to go ahead and extend those bottom feet at least a little bit. That way, you have maybe six inches or so before the actual locking mechanism on the tripod, whether it's a flip lock or a twist lock, gets into the grit and the sand and stuff. That keeps the important locking mechanism kind of above the bad stuff and out of the way. And I highly recommend you extend those bottom feet at least six inches before you dip it into the water. 
The next question is, do I use a sliding disc at all? Now what he's referring to here is the little Frisbee thing that maybe you've seen, maybe you haven't, but basically picture a Frisbee with a tripod head mounted right inside of it. And then you can take that assembly and you put it down in the sand, you put your camera on it, and then you can kind of get on your belly and scoot along. And honestly, they're kind of cool, but no, I've never actually used one. And the reason for that is simply because I don't usually like to shoot from the sand. It has more to do with where I like to shoot from than it does the actual usefulness of the device. So for me, I like to get either in the water or right along the edge of the water. So a lot of times I'll have like a lens coat raincoat on my gear as well, just to kind of protect it from that water. But I definitely want to make sure that I'm nice and low and I don't really like to get down into the sand with those little disc things. Instead, I'd rather be shooting right along the water or right from the water because I think it gives the images a much more unique perspective than every other image that was shot basically from the beach looking down towards the water. So that's why I don't use Final question here is what tripod do you use the most for your low shots and wet shots? Now my tripod is pretty much the same for everything. It's a really right stuff 34L Mark II. Now this tripod has been out for about a year and I've been using it almost since the day it was released and it's an absolutely wonderful tripod. I'm very happy with it. Plus it has o-ring seals. That's what really sold me on it on all of the little twist locks. So that's pretty cool. But the thing that really makes it great for low shots is that you can extend the legs out 90 degrees and put that sucker flat on the ground. One of the reasons I disdain center column tripods is because you can't get them as low. With a non-center column tripod, you can go ahead and put those legs out 90 degrees, stick it on the ground, and you are really, really low. You really get down to ground level there. And I'll put that information on the blog post slash show notes for this particular podcast. So those are all of Jack's questions, but there is one I think he forgot to ask, and it goes something like this. Hey Steve, when you get down low, do you ever check and make sure everything is safe before you lay down? Because this is a real critical one. You don't want to lay on a snake or something like that, and personal experience dictates that if you're not careful, you can go ahead and lay down on your belly all excited to get some cool duck or bird or something that's low in the water and discover that you've placed your nether regions just a little too close to a fire ant mound. And I'm just going to go ahead and let you figure the rest of that one out for yourself. I think you can probably imagine what happened after that. Alright, so that wraps up podcast number two. And by the way, this will be the last one for the year. With the holiday season coming up, it's just probably not the best time to release new podcasts. People are just busy doing other stuff. So the next podcast will be released very early January 2020. So I hope you'll be looking forward to that. And finally, I do want to wish you happy holidays and happy new year. And once again, thank you so much for listening. Have yourself a great day.